You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for returning the greeting. Three of you, that's great. Hey, tell you what, every time I come here, I see faces I don't know. It's, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, so by means of introduction, if you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm the location pastor at our other location, Collingwood Park. That's why you don't see me very often. And uh, this afternoon, I'll be back, or earlier and later this morning, I'll be back down there. So uh, what I'm dreading most of all now, what my greatest fear in life is, since we don't have air conditioning at Collingwood Park, is that uh, around about quarter past 11, the outline of my puny body will be visible through my sweaty shirt. <laughs> okay, so, so pray for me, pray for me. We're, we're making some gains down there. Um, This week we just had our very first ever location music practice on a Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of a a little bit of an imbalance. There was like five musicians and 15 singers, but but that's good, you know, that's good. And next term we start RE in Woodlink School. And... And it was, it was really good. We, there was an approach made to Woodlinks, and they said, the, the principal and the, uh, the administrator said, because of all the things that Centro Church does in Woodlinks School, we will pay for the books. Right. So, yeah. So, it's, it's good to have an influence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All righty. So let's get into the Word of God this morning. We are second week into a series a series on the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. We're going to be doing this one right up to Easter, probably through Easter and maybe out the other side. But Hebrews is a, is a good book to look at, isn't it? There's some unusual concepts in the book of Hebrews. There are things that, that are a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, there's a suggestion in Hebrews chapter 6 that things like repentance, faith, baptism laying on of hands, eternal judgment, are merely entry-level Christianity. That's the starting point. It's foundational. How many of us have moved on from there? You know, they, they, they say that these are foundational things. Or in chapter 12, the concept is introduced of the great cloud of witnesses. Let that one blow your mind, that somehow people who die with unfinished business on the earth still have an interest in that and somehow mysteriously have a role to play in that. I want Pastor Tim's going to be preaching in this series. I wonder if he could be persuaded to preach on the great, great cloud of witnesses. I'd like to hear him on that. Uh, he's, he's a thorough researcher. I'd like to hear him on that. So we might be able to persuade him and push him that way. But the great cloud of witnesses is a difficult concept to get your head around, isn't it? It's, um, it's not really clear who wrote this book. People say it's not the Apostle Paul. Um, I have a theory. I have a theory. Okay, look, look, don't stake your Christianity on this, okay? And don't go and say, our church believes. This is just my humble opinion, and it's a pretty humble opinion. I, I think because of the style of this book, it's not... It's not to the Hebrews, you know, Hebrew Christians. It just starts out, you know, God spoke in times past. It starts like in the middle of something. It starts like, and it sounds preachy. It sounds like a sermon. So here's my theory. I believe that it is Paul, that he was, he was preaching, and somebody was just sitting over in the corner with a quill and penciling away, 
and recorded his sermons and compiled them into a book and it circulated around the churches. Is that a good theory? Yeah, okay. And it's mine. That's what's good about my theory. So, yeah, it just doesn't have an introduction. It just goes straight in. But, uh, yeah, like I say, don't go and tell people that's what we believe. Pastor John took us through chapter 1 last week and a little bit into chapter 2, so we're going to go pick it up uh, a little bit into chapter 2 from there. We're going to start in Hebrews 2, and we're going to read from verse 6, and we're going to be reading in the Mirror Bible. Verse 6, Hebrews 2. Somewhere in the Scriptures, it is written... What is it about the human species that God cannot get them out of his mind? What does he see in the Son of Man that so captivates his gaze? He's made mankind all but equal to himself. He crowned them with his own glory and dignity and appointed them in a position of authority over all the works of his hands. God's intention was that human life should rule the planet. He subjected everything without exception to his control. Yet looking at the human race, it does not seem that way at all. But what is apparent is Jesus. Let us consider him in such a way that we may clearly perceive what God is saying to mankind in him. In the death he suffered, he descended for a brief moment below the lowest ranked shepherd messenger, that's angel, in order to taste the death of the entire human race and in doing so to fulfill the grace of God and be crowned again with the glory and highly esteemed honour. He towers in conspicuous prominence far above all things. He is both their author and their conclusion. He now summons every son of his through a perfected salvation to his own glory, the extent of which the extent of the suffering he bore is the measure of the perfection of the salvation over which he presides. And then we're going to jump to chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Friends, in the context of our co-inclusion with Christ, we are blameless. We participate in his heavenly identity. Acquaint yourselves immediately and fully with Christ Jesus as the ambassador and chief priest of our confession. Our lives co-echo the logic of God's eternal conversation in him. Verse 2, Jesus is proof of God's workmanship. He exhibits God's persuasion concerning us. Jesus is what God believes about us. That really is heavy, isn't it? Let let that just sit in the air for a moment. Verse 9 says, But what is apparent is Jesus... Let us consider him in such a way that we may clearly perceive what God is saying to mankind in him. What is God saying about himself in Jesus? Jesus came to earth for many reasons, but the main reason was to reveal the Father. We look at the Son, who for a time was seen, and we see the Father, who cannot be seen. Jesus Christ is perfect theology, the most accurate tangible exhibit of God's eternal thought finds expression in Jesus. In Jesus we see the perfect love of God redemptively working to heal the hearts of people and bring them to himself. Whatever you think about God and his nature, Jesus is a perfect picture. He's the clearest manifestation of the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. He clearly gives us a picture of the Father. Jesus represents that which emanates from the Father. 
He shows what the father is like when he rescues a woman who's about to be stoned by a mob. When he, as Pastor Tim told us, calms a storm. When he heals a guy called Blind Bartimaeus. He's just doing what the father would do. And even when he raised people from the dead, he was doing what a father would want to see his children alive. When Jesus healed someone, he was revealing the nature of the Father. Healing is present in the character and nature of God. He says, I am Jehovah Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals you. That's who he is. Wherever Jesus went, he healed people who were sick, blind, lame, or leprous, which gives us a picture of what God the Father is like, as a God who doesn't want us to be sick. And that's a good thing. Can you say amen? It's dark and I can't see, but you're there, aren't you? In fact, anything you think about God and you can't find in the life of Jesus, you have reason to question. He came to reveal the Father, someone who had never, ever been fully revealed before on the earth. Jesus brought a clear revelation. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he shows us a Father who is perfect, who loves us and has made provision for us to be restored to him. It doesn't matter who you are this morning, how close you feel to God or how far you feel away from him. That provision extends to all of us. It belongs to all of us. What Jesus did and how he lived his life made provision for all of us. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he's, he's giving an account of his life and he says, I manifested your name, I declared your word and I performed your works. He gave us a clear picture of the father people were made whole because jesus was showing us what the father was like and look i understand that that people have a a twisted a warped sense of fatherhood because of things that may have happened as a child that that earthly fathers sometimes fail sometimes get it wrong sometimes upset people sometimes do everlasting damage But Jesus gives us a representation of a perfect father who always gets it right, who never stuffs up the lives of his kids, who always wants the best for them, who always wants to see them as his original intended thought about them. He never makes mistakes. Jesus didn't come into this world and live his life on on a mountaintop. He came and he lived among people. He ate with us, he lived with us, he touched people. When, when he healed people, he, he touched them. He didn't do it from a distance. He touched people. Lepers were unclean. That's what they had to say. About, but Jesus touched them. In the Old Testament, lepers were taken away from the main congregation of faith. They were pushed aside. But Jesus welcomed them in and he touched them. In the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you got leprosy. In the New Testament, Jesus touched a leper, they got healed. That's the difference. And he trained his disciples to be the ones on earth who brought the kingdom of God. That's what he did. When Jesus was was portraying the Father, he was bringing the kingdom of God to earth. We often hear the expression, "I'm, I'm pursuing God, I'm pursuing what God has for me. You don't need to do that because God's pursuing you. He's chasing you. you know, he's not, it's not like I'm pursuing God and where is he? He's hiding behind a post or he's running away. No, it's not like that. God is pursuing us. He wants to be with us more than we want to be with him, if that's possible. He's pursuing us. 
We need to get that into our, into our heads. All I know that is that it's my intention to get caught as soon as possible. We don't need to pursue God because he's here. Can we live with the expectation that he is in our space, that we're sharing space with God, that he's with us? In the Old Testament, they had to seek God because they had a visitation relationship with him. But we have a different relationship with him. We have a habitation relationship with him. He lives with us, in us. We have access to him. So how do you seek God who never leaves you? You don't have to pursue him. You just come with a sense of expectation. Lord, I know you're here. I don't have to feel your presence. I don't have to do that. I know you're here. I know you're not a liar. And we can know that because we've seen Jesus as the express image of God the Father. So rather than seeing God who is someone who is distant, quick to judge, a harsh rebuker and a stern punisher. We see him as a loving father because that's what Jesus portrayed. That's our takeaway notion of what God is like, wanting desperately to be connected to us. In Jesus, we see what God is like, but from that passage, we can also see from the life of Jesus what we are supposed to be like, that he is the prototype human being that we have access to God on the same way that he does. Because when he came to earth, he lived as a human. He put aside his glory to be like us, to live like us, to take on the limitations of, of human beings. And that's how he lived. So I want you to see this morning that God's original intention for the human race is summarized and then reestablished in Jesus. God has a plan for the human race when he creates Adam, creates the first man, and it, it goes awry, it goes astray. Man gets derailed, man, get, man gets out of connection with God, but Jesus comes back and he restores that. He restores a perfect connection. He restores the presence of God in our lives, he, that God lives with us, that we don't have to seek him. So I want you to see that this morning. And the fact that this passage says that we were to rule over his creation... And not just that, but we, were, we are supposed to bring his order in the earth. Jesus brought the kingdom, we bring the kingdom. That's what we do, that's our role. That which exists there is supposed to exist here. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, Jesus is proof of God's workmanship. He exhibits God's persuasion concerning us. Jesus is what God believes about us. Back when, the um, first day of this year, New Year's Day, I was in uh, a place called Belito in South Africa and the first scripture I read that morning, picked up my Bible, read Isaiah 48 and it talks about God doing a new thing. That, that is a concept that we as Christians struggle with, that God wants to do a new thing because we're so happy with the old. We're so comfortable with the old. It's like, a, it's like a pair of worn-in shoes, isn't it? The old thing that God's done. But he says in Isaiah 48, from now on, I will talk to you about new things, new concepts, new ideas, hidden things not known before, not created before, but created now. Think about that. 
I mean, whenever there's been a revival in church history and there's, there's manifestations, things that, that happen that are, that are strange and unexplainable and, and you know, we go, look at that. that how is, what, what's, where's that in the Bible? We've got to stop that way of thinking. God doesn't need a precedent. He can do a new thing. He can do it however he wants. He is God. When he wants to do a new thing, we can't, we can't sort of restrict that by saying, well, that's not in the Bible. That thing hasn't happened in the Bible, so therefore it can't be God. We can't say that. We tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. But we can't say that this isn't God because it's not in the Scriptures. God says, I can do a new thing. I can do a thing that's created now, and if he creates something now... How could we have ever seen it before? God wants to do a new thing. Jesus demonstrated the nature of God in bringing new things. God is the God of the new. He's creative God. He made us that way too. One of the most undervalued scriptures in the the whole entire Bible is found in Genesis 1, where it says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let the full weight of that sort of permeate your head. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let us give him our attributes. Let us give him the the characteristics of the Godhead. Think about that. How powerful is that? He made us creative like he is. When Jesus came to earth, he demonstrated that side of God's nature. In Jesus, God spoke to his people, letting them know that there is the new waiting for them. But when you're trapped in the old, you stop believing in the new. Think about how many times the word new materialises in God's speak in the New Testament. We have the new covenant, a new creation, a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature, a new song, sing a new song to the Lord, a new heavens, and a new earth. I mean, I, I can understand why there needs to be a new earth. It's pretty worn out. But heaven's probably doing okay. You know, the streets of gold probably aren't showing much wear. So why does there have to be a new heaven? But God is the God of the new. His mercies are new every morning. And we've been singing about for the last couple of months, the new wine. Lord, bring the new wine out of me. The new. God is about bringing the new. What does new wine look like in your life? What's the next thing? What's the new thing? What can you see? What does God want to do? God is doing a new thing, but he needs to be in on the action. In the book of Revelation, almost at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. So what is it about the human species that God cannot get them out of his mind? It's because we are different to all the other species that he created. We have the power to choose, we have the power to imagine, and we have the power to therefore create. If we can choose and imagine, we can therefore create. Verse 8 says, God's intention was that human life should rule the planet. He subjected everything without exception to his control. Yet looking at the human race, it does not seem that way at all. And it does not seem that way at all. It doesn't seem like we can create. 
like that we can imagine and that we can bring that to pass because we don't do it. We like the familiar. We like the old. We like the worn-in pair of shoes. We've believed a lie that we are actually less than who we are. We believe that we're less than what God created us to be. That lie has stolen from us the essence of what it means to be human. Let us make man in our image with the characteristics and attributes of the Godhead contained in us, the capacity to create, the capacity to see something and bring it to pass. That's what makes humans different. That's what makes us different from horses and cattle and cats and rats and elephants. Verse 7 says, He has made mankind all but equal to himself. He crowned them with his own glory and dignity and appointed them in a position of authority over all the works of his hands. What he's telling us is that we as human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and we have this unique relationship to God's image that we are materialisers of the invisible as he was. It's gone pretty quiet in the church now. You're thinking, you think, some of you think he's crazy and you're about to yell heresy. But I hope you'll consider the possibility that you are designed by God to bring into play that which doesn't exist. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. See, humans are designed to dream, to imagine, and therefore create. But we think, no, that's out of our league. That's God's domain. That's his space. So I want to be really clear with you. You can't do what God does, but you can do what God created you to do. See, back in the 1950s, this little group of people decided and imagined that Ipswich needed a Pentecostal church. I've seen the book that records their imaginings. Before it actually happened, they're talking about it. They're talking about it. And here we are, sitting in what came out of their imagination. Can you see that? See, they had the imagination, but then they had the intent and the courage to follow through on that imagination, on that, on that notion in their head, that vision that they saw in their mind. You see, the, the New Testament is the domain of dreamers and visioners. That's what God said. In, in, I will pour out my spirit upon them and they will dream dreams and see visions. That's the type of people who manage the New Testament. At a staff retreat back in 2013 in October, a group of us imagined a new location at Collingwood Park. We imagined that. It, it wasn't there. It wasn't even spoken of until that day. And then we spoke about it and we imagined what it would, could be like. And the imagination grew and it grew, and it grew, and it got, it almost took on a life of its own, and it had a creative force in it, and now we have a location there. And it's been there for nearly four years, nearly five years. <laughs> so it was imagined, and it came to pass. Some of you, when you were younger, you, you met a guy or a girl, and you imagined a life with them. You imagined married life. You imagined 
what it would be like to live in a certain area in a certain type of house and how many kids you wanted to have. You imagine that. And, and now some of you are living out that imagination. It, it wouldn't have happened if it didn't start somewhere, if it didn't start with a seed of creativity, a seed of imagination. God made mankind all but equal to himself and he gave us his creative powers. And we imagine what does not exist and then with courage and intention begin to bring that imagination into reality. There's always some sort of conflict with this idea. I, I used to know a girl who went to a brethren church and she thought that all imagining, all imagination was wrong. It was, it was sinful. And her reason for that was a, a verse found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that says, casting down imaginations. And again, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the imaginations that were supposed to be cast out were the ones that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Not all imaginations, but, but sometimes that's what we do. We see a word and we go, aha, that's wrong. It's sin to do that. And we just we vilify something that God has given us to procreate, to bring about his vision in the earth, to bring about heaven on earth. Let's not do that. Imagining is fine. Think about, think about Abraham who imagined a place that God had spoken to him about. He imagined a place and he went there and it was, turned out to be the promised land. So there's always conflict. But the ability to create, the ability to imagine is what sets us apart as human beings. You don't see many zebras who imagine being a singer in a rock and roll band. You don't see many giraffes who have a dream of playing in the NBA. You don't see too many eagles who want to run for prime minister. It's just not in them. It's in us. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's because we have the same, the same power to create as God did. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that it's wrong to use your imagination. Another trap we can fall into is the notion that if God wants to do it, he'll do it. God's methods are people. Evil men don't wait for, position, for, for permission. And sometimes you've seen, we've seen nations destroyed by the, the imagination of just one evil person. Evil men don't wait for permission. We can't sit around pretending that the future is disconnected to us because the creative power to change things is resident in us. I don't know the past of everyone in this room, but as far as God's concerned, whatever you've done in your past, whatever you've left behind, you are not an ex-anything. You are now a creative force for him. You are someone who can see things that need to happen. You're someone who, with intent and courage, can bring those things about. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. When we live beneath that identity that we have in Jesus, we actually live out of alignment with God. When we live beneath that identity, when we actually live short of what his vision for us is, what his blueprint for us is, I can't afford to have thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have about, about me because that is living short of what he thinks about me. It's living out of alignment with him. He's a good father 
and he wants us to have everything he's stored up for us. When I was a kid, I'm going to do a, a football illustration, okay? Now, I used to have to explain that football is actually played with a round ball, but I don't have to do that anymore because there's so many football players in the room who've actually taken over from the leagueies. So, a football illustration. When I was a kid, I played football for Coal Stars. It was a team in Ipswich that's now um, merged with another club to form Ipswich Knights. And part of, part of our season was that, that, that Coal Stars would always send their under-14 teams to Newcastle. And we would be billeted with people and uh, we'd play like four games in a week and see the sights and overall just have a, have a fantastic time. And, uh, and that, it was a fantastic time for me. I went down there in 1974. And, and then the following year, we would reciprocate. The team from Newcastle would come up and they would, they would stay with us and see the sights of Ipswich and, and, uh, and play a few games against local clubs. When they actually did come up the next year, there was this, this curly-headed, black curly-headed kid in the team that came up and, uh, and he was an average footballer at best, I have to say. He was an average footballer at best but he kept going on with this notion, I'm going to go and play in England. I'm going to go and play in England. I'm going to go and play in England. And everyone got sick of him. You know, he was just annoying. And when the team went on excursions, when they went to Lone Pine to see the koalas, he stayed at home. He was billeted with a family up in Silkstone the Pedleys, and he, he just stayed home and kicked a soccer ball up against a fence for the duration of the time that they went on their excursion. Going to play in the English First Division, he said. And we all just said, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah. Later on that year, he wrote to every club in the English First Division. There wasn't a Premier League then, okay, so it was the English First Division that everybody wanted to go and play for. He wrote to every club in the English First Division and asked them for a trial. Out of the 22 clubs that were in there at the time, one club replied, Middlesbrough. And, uh, and so they said, yeah, come over, have a trial, we'll look at you. So his parents sold their house and financed his trip to England, his accommodation for an indefinite period, and his room and board. Okay, so that's what they've done. Um, I'm speaking, of course, about Craig Johnston if ever you've heard of him. Now, when he, was, when he went to Middlesbrough for a trial, he got out on the park. The manager at Middlesbrough was a guy called Jack Charlton who'd won the World Cup with England, and he said, you are the worst football player I've ever seen. Get lost back to Australia, which is sort of paraphrasing what Jack actually said. He said he was the worst football player that he'd ever seen. And anyway, that night, Craig's mum rings him from Australia, and she says, how's it going? How's the trial going? And he says, great, Mum. Big Jack loves me. Yeah. He didn't, just didn't have the heart to tell her that, that there was going to be, that, that he'd failed. And so for a year, he spent all of his time at the club hiding from Big Jack with a football out in the car park, practising. And he just practised and he practised and he practiced. He would set up rubbish bins and dribble in between them. And when he could do that, he'd do it blindfolded. And he got good at it. And he worked on his own drills for six hours a day. 
So he, in fact, spent two and a half years at Middlesbrough in the car park practising skills on the, on the financial assistance of his parents who'd sold their house. Then Middlesbrough appointed a new manager who, parking in the car park one day, said, who's this kid? Give him a trial. And then, so they gave him another trial and they signed him up at age 17. The youngest player ever to play first team at Middlesbrough. In 1981, a few years later, he was signed by football superpower Liverpool Football Club for £650,000. It was cheap in those days. He played in two European Cup finals. That's Champions League. He played in two Champions League finals. And he also scored in an FA Cup final. A month after that, he was a, a celebrity participant in a, in a fun run, uh, Bob Geldorf's Race Against Time, which was a 10-kilometre run that started in the, the Brisbane Mall at midnight and finished about an hour later. And I bumped into him there. The first time I, I saw him, I thought he was an average footballer. Second time I saw him, I got his autograph. <laughs> <laughs> he had a vision. And everything else was subordinate to that. He imagined that thing that was so far away, that was so beyond the realms of possibility, and he imagined it and he imagined it until the creative force in his humanness took over and propelled him into this career. When he came back to Australia after his career was over, he continued to imagine things. And he imagined and developed the Adidas Predator football boot, which is a, a, ma a main seller for Adidas all over the world. Everybody wears them. He continued with this, this process in his life. See, everywhere, everyone ends up somewhere in life. Not many people end up somewhere on purpose. We have the creativity we have that resident within us, the power to imagine a life that is beyond the realms of possibility. What can we imagine? What can you imagine this morning? Are you satisfied with where you are? If, if so, then go home. But if you're not, then the power to change that is resident within you. It's there. It's accessible. It's part of who God made you to be. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let's give him attributes of the Godhead. Let's make him a little lower than us and give him the things that he needs to create. Meaning for us that we shouldn't be conformed to the patterns of limitedness. We imagine. We imagine a life. We're sitting in someone's imagined church at the moment. In a short while, I'm going to drive to another church that was imagined. I'll go home to a house that I imagined 40 years ago. What can we imagine that can bring heaven to earth, that can bring the kingdom of God into Ipswich? It's ours. It's ours to do. The domain of human beings.
you for listening to this podcast.